are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths and misinformation taught to you on school and on corporate media. I'm your host, Isha. Today, we have Meredith Lair from George Mason University to talk to us about her book, Armed with Abundance, which explains the hedonism in the U.S. military bases in Vietnam, Iraq, and also probably in every other war. Hello, Meredith. Thank you so much for coming. What inspired you to write your book, Armed with Abundance? Well, so I talk a little bit about that in the beginning of the book that I, in a weird way, started working on this project when I was in seventh grade as part of History Day, because I was always fascinated by the Vietnam War. I was born in 1972, so I don't have any personal memories of the Vietnam War. But my father was a career military officer, and he served two tours in Vietnam. And that was always fascinating to me. And one aspect of his service that was particularly fascinating to me was that his first tour in Vietnam sounded a lot like what I thought as a kid a war was going to be, where he was in a very austere environment and was in a lot of danger and people were being seriously harmed and and killed. And then his second tour sounded nothing like what a war should be. And and he himself kind of elevated that, that, that he, when he arrived in Vietnam the second time, that he was shocked at the, at how the American presence had grown and developed. And so there was a kind of seed planted in stories that I would hear from my dad not so much stories that he volunteered, but just that I interviewed him when I was in middle school and then again in college, and, and, and he always nurtured my interest. So then when I was tasked in graduate school with producing original scholarship about the Vietnam War, I had this kind of kernel of an idea that the war was not necessarily how Hollywood was depicting it or how most Americans understood it. Absolutely not. <laughs> um, So one thing that you kind of mention even about the Iraq war Mm -hmm. is the desert bar, as in D-E-S-S-E-R-T. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, so that's an anecdote that I I pulled from a book by a guy named um, Phil Kiver, his memoir of the Iraq war. I, I almost think the universe intended for me to use that because I met him twice on the metro when I don't take the train to work, like it was so I just felt like after I met him the second time, I was like, I really need to read this guy's book. And and he included a photograph in his uh, book about his own experiences in Iraq about this dessert bar. And and then more broadly was talking about the defects or the uh, the dining facilities in Iraq. And so DFAC, a military acronym that people use to uh, refer to the cafeteria. Correct. Yeah, and these defects in in Iraq were enormous. Um, they could, you know, service several thousand people in a day, and they were really elaborate at the height of the Iraq War. And so I bracket the book with the discussion of Iraq because I wanted uh, the readers to come away with a sense that what happened in Vietnam, in terms of the U.S. military shoring up morale through consumer goods and through a kind of, you know, material abundance was not a one-off. It wasn't specific to the Vietnam War, but actually was the beginning of a pattern that has continued and at times intensified. And so that was kind of the utility of thinking about Iraq and how uh, that thread has continued to factor into the, the way that the United States fights wars. And interestingly enough, among the veterans that I hear from about the book, the people that are the most keen on it and are inclined to write me and say, hey, I love your book, 
are Iraq war veterans who say you nailed it. Um, so that's a, that's a common piece of feedback that I've, I've received. Just in talking about the, the big bases and the way they were organized and what was available on them, which was as far from, you know, the way most Hollywood depictions of war as it can be. So let's get back to the desert dessert bar. I'll just read that sure. part out. So they had a pastry chef and they right. had a bar which had 30 different desserts that they could pick from any single day. Mm-hmm. And this man didn't even have dessert at home normally in America, but right. here he's being served 30 different desserts. And it's a way of, I guess, calming the conscious or whatever. Um, and so, yeah, and there is an, and so that that's where she begins her book, um, Armed with Abundance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's an anecdote that I didn't use in the book, but that I feel like I can share here if I animize the person who told it to me. And it was, he he served in Iraq and he was, uh, part of his work uh, required him to travel from base to base. And so he would schedule his visits to bases so that he could be there on Alaskan King Crab Night. And so he said he gained a lot of weight during his tour of duty in Iraq because he was eating Alaskan King Crab a couple of times a week. And, and so that's, I'm not saying that that kind of culinary opulence existed everywhere in Iraq. It, it didn't, or, and certainly didn't in Vietnam, but it was a feature at the high point of the American occupation that, um, you, you know, on the one hand, you know, we can look at it through a critical lens and say, what is going on here that the U.S. is spending so much money and, and actually risking people's lives by stuffing all these consumer goods and, and this fresh, non-perishable food that doesn't exist in the desert into a war zone. And, and then on the other hand, in this very human way, I think that we all wish that our loved ones who serve overseas would have everything that they need and want. So there's an interesting tension there. And I don't mean to criticize people for their choices in kind of, you know, ordering their lives around these little luxuries, because there's still a great deal of fear and uncertainty associated with military service in a war zone, even if you're not uh, serving in a combat or even dangerous capacity. So one thing that your dad said was that, I don't know how to pronounce it, uh, the, the base properly. It's in Vietnam. It's called Long Bin. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So the Long Bin base popped up in 1970 that it didn't exist in 1965. So what was Long Bin? Where was it? And what kind of opulence was there? So Long Bin was the, eventually became the largest and most well-developed base in South Vietnam. It was uh, outside of Saigon. And it was created out of concern for uh, troops serving in, this, in the greater Saigon area that because they were staying in billets that were basically civilian hotels and they were getting their meals and their entertainment on the local economy, that that was putting American soldiers at risk. And so there was a project that began in the mid-1960s called Moose, move out of Saigon expeditiously. And Longbin was the result of that effort to create a base that would be the home to U.S. Army Vietnam headquarters. So that's the headquarters of the Army's presence in Vietnam. And the Army provided about 60% of the manpower in the Vietnam War. It would be sort of the nerve center for the Army and for the Army's logistical efforts in the Vietnam War, which meant that it was going to be a big base 
And uh, because they didn't want American soldiers going onto the local economy to, to get their entertainment and uh, their nights out and so forth, they, they created a base that was over time became increasingly elaborate. Uh, it, at its peak was home to over 60,000 Americans. And uh, it had every amenity that you could imagine. And it was serviced by a commuter bus service. That's how big it was. So you have to really envision a city roughly the size of Toledo, Ohio, on which Americans worked. And so uh, the base was so large that it was, in, you know, in some places felt very much like an American base that was stateside, but with palm trees and Vietnamese employees. In the book, you also mention a vacation that they took near the Long Bin Beach uh, to like some, I mean, like a beach vacation. Uh, am I imagining this or did you mention that? Well, so I have a whole chapter about the U.S. recreation program in Vietnam. And um, so U.S. soldiers were entitled to R&R. Um, and the U.S. military created a program to facilitate that. And there were a lot of components to that R&R program. You know, and it was designed to raise their morale, to give them something to look forward to, um, to create an outlet for them to enjoy the culture of Vietnam or of, of Asia more generally. And so some of the R&R centers were in-country. The most famous is China Beach because of the TV show from the 1980s. Um, there was another one at Vong Tau. And then there were some that were not near the beach that were, you know, maybe served a specific unit and they would maybe have a swimming pool and have some, you know, tennis courts and things and guys could go there and, and relax. And then there was an out-of-country R&R program that enabled American GIs to go to destinations throughout uh, Asia, uh, to Australia in some cases. And then there was even a program that enabled Americans to come home. Uh, most of them didn't come all the way back to the continental United States. Um, I just uh, dug up actually this week a photo of my parents at Bellows Beach in Hawaii, and they met there during my dad's second tour so that he could spend time with my mom and my sister, who was a baby. And so that was another possibility for Americans serving in Vietnam, that they could meet their loved ones in Hawaii. So the R&R program was a part of that. But then there were also Americans who were tasked with maintaining these facilities. And so for people who served, you know, in some kind of support capacity near one of these beaches or these R&R facilities, they kind of got to have R&R any time that they weren't on the clock. And so their war experience was much more routinized, where they might be working an eight or 12 hour shift, but then in their off duty hours, they can go to the beach, they can hang out at a bar on the beach or watch a, a floor show of dancers. Um, and so, uh, you know, those are experiences that we don't normally associate uh, with military service in Vietnam. And to contrast this, um, I'm reading a RAND report of what the Vietnamese were in Saigon. And because of the bombings, many rural people moved there. Mm -hmm. And you, every time there was in around the U.S. base, Vietnamese um, people were like digging through the garbage because there was so much poverty there. Right. So there was a big difference between what the Americans were living and what the Vietnamese were living. Right. Yeah, and, I, I'll point out that the largest, in the late 1960s, the largest garbage dump in the world was outside of American bases at Da Nang. And people lived and worked in those dumps. They scavenged everything that was usable and serviceable. And that dump at Da Nang at one point was set afire 
by U.S. authorities to prevent that kind of scavenging activity. And so essentially what happened in Vietnam is that the United States waged this war of indiscriminate violence that killed and injured literally hundreds of thousands of Vietnamese people in a relatively short time. It made the Vietnamese countryside so dangerous that fully a third of the Vietnamese population became homeless. And the places that they went to to try to eke out a living were places where somebody was spending money. And the only people in Vietnam who really had discretionary income to spend were American GIs. And so as a result of that, the Vietnamese economy becomes oriented around catering to the needs of American GIs through bars, through pedicab rides, through prostitution, through a black market, through selling souvenirs. And so it really upends life for Vietnamese people who are rendered homeless by the war and then have to pursue, in, in many cases, very degrading forms of work because that was all that was available to them. So it's very unsettling then to think about Americans who are safely ensconced on bases where they have access to you know, hot food and, and potable water and electricity and television and all kinds of labor-saving devices and, uh, and shopping opportunities and entertainment and, and recreational opportunities and then to think that literally within sight, just yards away, are people living in this crushing poverty. Thanks for listening to Historically. We keep our green room for our guests well-stocked with Jenny's ice cream. At $12 a pint, we need your subscription dollars to keep that going. Go to historically.substack.com and subscribe today. You'll get all of our podcasts and an awesome newsletter in your inbox. Once again, go to historically.substack.com. Well, in the book, um, Kill Everything That Moves, this is one of the prostitutes that the base hired. He says, at the entrance to the MACV, which is like the military compound, in Nan, a six-year-old girl is offering blowjobs for 150 of the Vietnamese currency, which is like about $8. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's a very unsavory facet of the war, and it's one that scholars have not fully explored because it's, you know, it's, it's difficult to talk about the sex trade anyway. There are issues of consent where, you know, a six-year-old girl selling blowjobs, is, that's not prostitution, that's child rape, right? So yes, sorry about that. Um, yeah, so it's it, so I would say that that there's a the scholarship of the Vietnam War has a long way to go to really fully flesh out what that portrait was, and it's it's uncomfortable to think about you know our boys in uniform who are in, indulging in uh, the sex trade in Vietnam, but it is a reality, and it was one that um, was tolerated around American bases by the command, was implicitly encouraged because you know, commanders were concerned about venereal disease. And so we're sending medics into brothels. And then in some cases, there were brothels that were functioning on American bases. There was a sort of wink and a nod that they were massage parlors, but that is what they were. And yeah, so that's just a a very uncomfortable facet of the sort of morale effort in Vietnam is that uh, U.S. military authorities either encouraged or looked the other way on activities that are important and uh, in the United States would be illegal. Yep. Um, so you, you mentioned there are grunts and then there are people to support these auxiliary services. Can, right. so, so the military base itself, because they were getting consumerist, they had to bring more and more people 
to service that, right? Yeah, I mean, it's um, it's not just that there's a lot of consumer consumerism that drives the American occupation. What what drives it is the violence of the war. And so once the U.S. in this in 1965 starts to shift to fighting the war itself rather than encouraging and supporting the Vietnamese or the military to do it, from that point forward, then the logistical effort explodes. And so you know, every time you put a unit in, or you put more helicopters or planes or other equipment in those are targets. And so then that creates a need for greater security. And so the war sort of becomes an argument for itself that, that, well, we have all of this stuff to produce violence against the Viet Cong and the North Vietnamese. And now we need more people to protect, protect this stuff that we use to produce violence against the North Vietnamese. But attendant with that is that Americans have high expectations for how they want to be cared for. And of course, a very large percentage of Americans who served in the Vietnam War did not want to be there. And so the command has a problem that how do they maintain order and discipline and compliance and, and efficiency for the war effort. And one of the key ways that they do that is through consumerism. And it's basically saying to American GIs, you know, it sucks that you're here, we're, you know, but you can make the most of it by saving for a car or by buying these luxury consumer goods at a kind of subsidized price through the PX or by having an amazing shopping excursion to Hong Kong or another, you know, or Singapore. And so the command is kind of leaning heavily on consumerism to shore up morale because the ideology of the war is really troubling and the violence of the war is troubling uh, to a lot of American GIs who are, who are sort of being forced to, to service that. And to your point about the grump, grunts and the rumps, rump is a, an acronym from the Vietnam era that stands for rear echelon mother <laughs> and so so it is a pejorative the contemporary term would be fobbit uh from the iraq war of these are guys that never leave the forward operating base or fob um or pogue that's more of a marine corps term which possibly translates to person other than grunt but it's a caste system where there's more cachet in being uh some kind of combat uh in some working in some kind of combat capacity versus working in a service capacity. And so there was tension. Uh, there is tension in the U.S. Armed Forces, uh, at least those that deploy between grunts and fobbits or between people who leave the wire and people who don't. And there was definitely tension in the Vietnam era. And that's something that it doesn't really carry home to veterans because it's not in veterans' interest to, uh, when they're advocating for recognition from the U.S. public or for resources, for them to, to kind of be divided. And so all of that gets alighted over and and then the public is left with this perception that everybody who served must have served in combat. But in fact, that iconic infantry experience that we see in movies like Platoon and Hamburger Hill and Casualties of War and Apocalypse Now, that was an experience that was only had by probably 10 or 15% of Americans who served in Vietnam. And at most, 20, 25% of Americans served in combat in some capacity. Everybody else was serving in some kind of support capacity. So one thing that really shocked me was this part where you said, well, Vietnam's challenging environment, uh, water damage, power surges, boredom-induced overuse caused electronics to break down. The war itself could wreak havoc on the soldiers' personal possessions. The Military Personnel and Civilian Claims Act of 1964 offered an official remedy, compensation up to $10,000 for personal property lost or damage incident to the military service. Well, what struck me is that in Kill Everything That Moves, 
they say that, so the U.S. soldier accidentally killed two people who are Vietnamese and their compensation was like $30 per person. Mm -hmm. So this stereos versus people, it's uh, shocking to me, I, I guess. I don't know what else to say about that. Yeah, no, that's a great um, and uncomfortable comparison that I hadn't really thought about um, because I don't explicitly compare the compensation that that the U.S. military gave for human life or for the destruction of crops or or structures. There, you know, there there was some of that in Vietnam. Um, it was never enough, and even you know, even if it had been millions of dollars, it doesn't. You you don't get your child back. You don't get your leg back. Um, there's not a way to make people whole in an environment like that. But yeah, it is, yeah, it was insurance for GIs. And I'm sure, I don't know the particulars, but there's probably something like that now where the assumption is, you know, you've got a lot of stuff, right? You've got your, in your hooch or your barracks, you might have your little refrigerator and your electric fan and the pearls that you bought for your mom. And if a mortar lands on all that and destroys it, you deserve to be insured for that. And so that was the thinking behind that program, but um, it, it was definitely better funded than uh, on a per capita basis than the program to make Vietnamese people whole when their loved ones were killed accidentally. Or Okay. In 1968, the going rate for adult lives was $33, while children merited just half of that. Right. Yes. Yeah, so... so it kind of shows you how you have to dehumanize people in war. Right. But you know, there's American life was, was squandered as well, right? It's, so here's an example for you. There was a big settlement about Agent Orange. So Agent Orange contains dioxin, a known carcinogen. There was knowledge that Agent Orange was harmful uh, as of the 1960s. And yet Vietnam was, is, um, you know, large swaths of Vietnam were sprayed with Agent Orange. And there were court cases that said that Vietnamese people basically didn't have standing to sue these American companies. American GIs and their families also sued for compensation. And a big settlement fund was created, but the average check was $3,800. And this Yikes. is for people who, this is for American servicemen who had debilitating medical conditions. And, you know, so... So what happens in a war is it, it's very uncomfortable and, it, and I think impossible to defend, but it's that human life becomes really cheap. And, uh, and it's, not just, it's not just Vietnamese life, but it's American life too. So, you, uh, you also mentioned how Vietnam, like a, a little bit of the war was on television, mm -hmm. but, and how did that play into the American psyche? Yeah, so it's Vietnam is known uh, as the first television war because a large percentage, you know, 90% of Americans had TV by the late 1960s. And there was a lot of footage coming out of the Vietnam War because journalists were not censored. So we see a lot of things from the Vietnam War that we didn't see from World War II and we haven't seen from subsequent wars. It's not that they're not happening. It's just that in World War II, there was heavy government censorship. And also the technology was very different. So in Vietnam, there wasn't live footage from the battlefield, but footage from the battlefield could be on television within 24 to 48 hours. And journalists in Vietnam really didn't have any, any restrictions on where they could go. So long as they were willing to take the risk for their own safety and they could get a ride, they could, they could accompany U.S. Uh, forces on any kind of mission. And so the American public was seeing things 
um, that they had never seen before. And uh, I actually just talked about the this um, little operation in a village called Kemni that became quite famous because Morley Safer of later 60 Minutes fame covered it on the CBS Evening News. And it was shocking to the Americans. This was August of 1965 that they're watching footage of American GIs using Zippo lighters to burn down Vietnamese civilians' homes, sometimes with the people in them. And this was an operation in which almost no Americans were injured, uh, no Americans were killed. There was almost no hostile fire meaning that there was not really a justification for this level of violence to burn um, hundreds of structures, an entire village burned to the ground, people taken prisoner or people just left homeless as a result. And, and so there's a way in which those kinds of images out of the Vietnam War caused Americans to not just question the war, but to question who they are as a people, because it was so such a, a violent contrast with the images Americans had constructed of themselves after World War II as liberators and benefactors for the rest of the world. So you had an entire chapter on the sexual debauchery of the war. And so there were these bars that had girls in them, and sometimes they would be quote-unquote girlfriends, but they were not Mm -hmm. quite. Like, what, what was that? Yeah, so there's a lot of facets to the sex trade in Vietnam. And, um, you know, so there were brothels that were overt where the relationship was very plain that American GIs would go in, they would pay a very nominal amount of money to have their bodies service, and and then they would go on their way. There was a lot of entertainment on American bases. And so that included um, floor shows that had um, go-go girls. So these would be very scantily clad girls who would dance. They weren't strippers and they weren't entirely naked, but in some bases they were topless. And and so that was another way that women's bodies were consumed in the Vietnam War. Then there was this concept known as Saigon Tea, which was where a, um, you know, a GI would go to a bar in a village or in a city in Vietnam and would sit at the bar and buy drinks for a girl who would keep him company. And sometimes that would lead to you know, a sex for hire relationship, but sometimes it was really just about getting these guys drunk and getting them to spend a lot of money. And then there was a kind of girlfriend experience where American soldiers would keep a girlfriend and ha- you know, rent an apartment for her or rent an apartment for her and her entire family. They could and- afford that? Um, if, they were officers, if, they were, if they were officers, they could. Okay. Yeah, I mean, you have to think about the intense poverty. If, if from the Nick Terse book, you know, you talked about the compensation being, you know, $30, $35 for an adult life. Like, think about how cheap it is to rent a human being um, mm-hmm. and to rent housing. It's, Americans were sort of transformed from, in many cases, being impoverished in the United States to being wealthy people in Vietnam because of of the power of the dollar on the local economy. And so that was a phenomenon that it was more probably for officers, but for enlisted personnel as well, um, that they could keep a girlfriend and, you know, buy her gifts and so forth. And, you know, some of the, that is a consensual relationship on the surface, but it's one that's fraught by a very big power differential, where the poverty of the young woman and her need to try to support her siblings and her parents is putting her in a very vulnerable position. And and then for GIs, there was a, a sort of perverse pride that they weren't actually paying for sex, you know, that they had a girlfriend, and they just had to keep her in this apartment as a, as a benevolent gesture. But 
the line between paying for sex and not paying for sex is, is really obscured there. And, um, and there's one story um, that I also didn't include in the book that, that really illustrates how horrifying this is. And that's that um, in one case, there was an officer who had a girlfriend in Saigon. He was married um, back to a woman in the United States. And so when he left um, Vietnam, he sold this woman to another officer for $50. And the way the woman found out that she had been sold is that she came home to her apartment and found another man there. And that's horrifying, right? And then that's a man who went home to his all-American family, but he literally sold a woman or sold access to a woman. Yeah, that is very, yeah. And, And you also mentioned the overuse of drugs and alcohol that kind of came with the war. Yeah, um, there's a great book um, by Jeremy Kuzmarov, and I can't think of the name of it, but it's about the drug use in Vietnam. And and he argues, and I think argues persuasively, that the drug problem in Vietnam was overstated by the Nixon administration. But also the drug problem, it it is pervasive if you include alcohol. Um, The Vietnam War Zone is saturated with alcohol. Troops can buy it on a per-drink basis in bars that are on American bases, they in many cases can go into the, you know, civilian bars and, and buy alcohol. They can buy um, booze by the case, you know, beer by the case and wine and liquor in PXs. So there's, and, and it's just sort of understood in the way the policies work and so forth, that that, that is another way that the command is going to shore up uh, morale is by providing this, all of this alcohol. But of course, alcohol is a depressant. It, you know, rem- removes people's inhibitions. And so it, it creates a lot of problems on American bases in terms of behavior, violence, gambling, uh, you know, insubordination. So yeah, there's a lot of alcohol, but it wasn't, alcohol abuse wasn't understood to be a problem. Like people had very different ideas in the 1960s about what was an appropriate amount to drink. So, you know, there was a sort of understanding that if you only drank beer, you couldn't be an alcoholic. Um, that was a, a popular misconception. And, uh, and that alcohol use wasn't drug abuse. So yeah, it, it was, it, it's kind of phenomenal the amount of alcohol that American soldiers did consume and also that the command expected them to consume. I guess that makes sense. I mean, it is a very traumatizing experience and I guess it's, it's kind of meant to dull the senses a little bit. Right. I mean, I think, you know, here we are in the midst of this global pandemic and um, I haven't eaten, I've never in my life eaten so many Reese's peanut butter cups. Um, <laughs> you know, people are, are medicating in a lot of ways. They're eating food and kinds of food that they don't normally eat. The, you know, alcohol sales recently have, have exploded in the United States because people are medicating with alcohol. People medicate themselves with the internet, you know, with playing mindless games and, and going down you know, Reddit rabbit holes. And, you know, Vietnam was, it was no different that people were, Americans were far from home. Um, Two thirds of them, by most estimates, did not want to be there, um, were reluctant participants in this. Um, A lot of them had real questions about the ethics of the war and what they were supporting. There was this feeling that your life, that life at home is going on without you, because it's actually a relatively small percentage of people who served versus people who could have served. It's less than 10%. So, you know, you're, you're stuck in Vietnam in some crappy little fire base 
And, you know, yeah, maybe you work 12 hours a day, but that leaves 12 other hours to wonder, you know, how your parents are and to wonder if your girlfriend's dating some other guy and to wonder what's going to happen to you tomorrow. And so people look for ways to make themselves feel better. And one way was through alcohol and another way was through shopping. Um, Okay. So do you have any idea of what happened to this base after the end of the war? Are you talking about Long Bin? Yeah. Yeah. So it became an industrial park. So uh, it's not just Long Bin. I mean, there's Bianhua Air Base, Tonsonet Air Base, or big bases at Da Nang and Pleiku. There are American bases all over Vietnam. The United States made, made hundreds, maybe even thousands of little bases, you know. So, so these installations um, started as the United States started to draw down its presence in 1969, starts to turn over these bases to Arvin units, to the Army of the Republic of Vietnam, the South Vietnamese military. And so the South Vietnamese military used some of them in the short term. Others became ghost towns. And I, I can't remember the exact ones, but I talk about that a little bit in the book, that there were some that, you know, they went from being nothing there to being a base that was home to 10,000 people to then being just completely abandoned. And of course, you have this itinerant Vietnamese civilian population that's homeless. And so they kind of move into these places or start to dismantle the structures and haul away usable stuff to make their own homes. And so, yeah, the, some of the bases uh, became Vietnamese military bases after the North Vietnamese took over. Because the United States made all of these phenomenal helipads and uh, runways and so forth. And a lot of that hardscaping of the Vietnamese landscape is still there. Um, I went to Vietnam in 2006 with my dad, and we went back to Quang Nai, uh, which was home, or or, excuse me, to LZ English, which was home to the 173rd Airborne Brigade. And uh, and there was a very, very serviceable runway there that was being, uh, one of the runways was being used for driver's ed training, and the other one was being used to drive Maniac, and just a bunch of kids from the local village were riding their bikes on it. And, you know, and that was all that was left. Um, There wasn't any of the asphalt, there wasn't a single piece of pipe or plastic or anything that would have indicated that there were ever 5,000 Americans living in that spot. But there was that runway. And so there's, that's sort of the only vestigial trace. When I was at Quezon, uh, there's a runway there that's not paved, but it's a big, you know, you could still land planes on that, that airstrip. And then you could see little bits of sandbag little bits of that burlap that was used for sandbag in the dirt. And that was literally the only trace. Um, And it's because the Vietnamese are incredibly practical people. And so all of that was essentially recycled and and upcycled and repurposed in some way over the, the last 50 years. Okay. So I'm just curious, like, what is the lesson that Americans haven't learned about war that you think they should learn? Like, in regards, because we have U.S. military bases almost in every country. So what is it that people need to kind of take away from that? Well, in terms of war, I mean, I think every war starts with this, you know, tremendous hope, you know, that that it'll be over and the boys will be home by Christmas. And, you know, and what's very clear is, is that uh, is that every war is going to be worse than imagined. Um, so you know, so I think that when people hear the the drumbeat of war, and I was researching this book in the midst of the beginnings of the Iraq War, I think I, I would wish that they would that they would hit pause and and think about what's coming because we have a lot of conflicts in the rearview mirror that we can point to and say, oh, um, that could happen again, and so. 
you know, here we are with uh, having been in Afghanistan since for, for 19 years and counting, having been in Iraq since 2003. These are not stable places. These are not places that, are, that have been made permanently better by the U.S. presence. So a staggering amount of money has been spent. A large number of Americans have been killed and an even larger number have been permanently injured as a result of their service. Um, potentially hundreds of thousands of local civilians have been killed or have lost their homes or livelihoods. The infrastructure of Iraq in particular was destroyed and never really rebuilt as a result of the American war there. There's staggering environmental damage as a result of American occupation that I think we've really failed to take stock of. And all of that has yielded what? Unstable regimes that are only capable of providing security and controlling the literal ground that, that they stand on. So I, you know, I just wish uh, that people had heeded the, uh, you know, kind of the warnings of the Vietnam War in throwing their support by the, behind the U.S. military, especially in, in the invasion of Iraq. Because I think Vietnam tells us what we need to know, that we don't get to decide what happens and that all the violence and all the money is not necessarily enough and all the American lives is not necessarily enough to yield the result that the United States wants. So why do it? Thank you so much. What are you working on next? Like what, 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 what projects or what is your, where is your research now taking you like next uh, for the future? Well, so I'm interested in, in kind of the veteran experience and the way that that uh, veterans have told their own stories about the Vietnam War. So one project that's limping along is about museums that veterans created about mil their military service in Vietnam that, that dot the countryside. And then um, another project that's gaining a little bit of momentum for me actually does deal with the sex trade, um, where I was driven to this by a comment that another scholar made in a book where he relied on, on a quotation from uh, an American a uh, serviceman in Vietnam to say that rape didn't happen. And, and I thought, well, that's not a very good source for making that kind of claim. And the problem is, yeah, we don't have a lot of outcries from Vietnamese or American women who were sexually assaulted or exploited in the Vietnam War. Um, but if you think about that in light of what we learned from the Me Too movement, that the normative experience for American women in the 21st century is, who, is to have been assaulted or exploited or groped or disrespected in some way. And so if that's the normative experience for empowered American women in the 21st century, then what was the experience for um, American women serving in the Vietnam War zone or for Vietnamese women who are living there? And so I'm currently moving through a list of literally hundreds of American memoirs um, by servicemen to see how they talk about the sex trade. Uh, because what we don't have is the voices of American and Vietnamese women speaking directly to this issue. But my question is, you know, what if we uh, examined these accounts through the lens of um, informed consent and then think about the, the kind of relationships that we talked about before in a different way? And what, what portrait of um, sexual exploitation and objectification and assault would that yield? So that's the, the gist that I'm, uh, of what I'm working on now. Um, do you have any social media accounts you want to plug? We're almost <laughs> over, uh, at the end of the interview. So, I, really, um, 
I really don't. Um, I don't know. I prefer to just be a kind of anonymous okay. um, presence, but I appreciate the offer to uh, promote my brand. Okay. Um, what about, um, where can people find uh, uh, your book? People can find my book by Googling Armed with Abundance. Uh, it's available for sale at, um, uh, you know, any kind of big retailer. Um, it's spelled, uh, it's not in reverse on the cover. And I would love it if you would buy my book. Uh, I get $1.50 for every book that I sell that gets sold. Um, but more importantly, just check it out at your local library. Um, that would be a great way to support your local library too. Well, thank you so much for coming. And um, this was like one of the, it, this was a fantastic interview. So I really appreciate this. And when you're done with the next project, please come again. Okay. All right. Well, thank you for having me. Thanks for letting me talk about my work. And, uh, and thanks for your patience with my, my crazy schedule today. Okay. Well, have a great day. Thank you. Thanks, Robert. Thanks, Esha. Bye. Well, thank, thanks so much, Meredith. All right. Take care. Take care. Bye. Music for this show is done by Rectech. You can find him on SoundCloud and on Spotify. W-R-E-C-K-T-E-C-H. And thank you for listening to our show.